As Brittany said, we're going to be talking about the empowering of the Holy Spirit today, and we're going to be in a few moments in Ephesians chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bible. It's in the New Testament, the second half of your Bible, the Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you've got Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and then you've got Galatians, Ephesians. So that's where you find it, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3 in a little bit. As I mentioned in the teaching teaser that went out this week, uh, we're going to be talking about how the Holy Spirit empowers us to know and fulfill God's will. Very important thing. And we're going to be looking at both the Old and New Testament as we focus in on three main aspects of this empowerment. And I want to start with an Old Testament uh, story and kind of background because I believe it sets the foundation for our topic today really well. 2,500 years ago, God spoke through and to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 6 of his prophecy, the book that's named after him, Zechariah 4, 6, and that famous verse that many of us know and many of us have quoted, God said, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And as I said, many of us know that, many of us have used that, but we forget the context of that. And so I want to kind of fill you in on the context because it really sets the stage for our conversation today. After Israel's 70-year-long exile in Babylon, they were taken away. You know, God was punishing them, judging them again for their sins and their idolatry, and he allowed the Babylonians to conquer them and take them a long way away to their country, and they were in this 70-year period of slavery and um, exile. And it was at the end of the 70-year time that, Zechariah was born in Babylon. Now, he was born a Levite. He was from the tribe of Levi. So he was not only a, uh, a prophet, but he was also a priest, just like Jeremiah and Ezekiel who preceded him. And his name, which he shared with about 30 other guys in the Old Testament, literally means Yahweh remembers. The Lord God remembers. I think what a beautiful message for God's people even in the name of his prophet, that I see you, I remember you. I know you've been in slavery, I know you've been manipulated and exploited in this foreign country by people who don't know me or serve me, but I have not forgotten you. I see you and I remember you. But when the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire in around 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great decreed that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And so Zechariah, with about 50,000 Jewish exiles, returned to Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, was tasked with overseeing the rebuilding of the temple. But there was this external oppression by other nations that still was going on against Israel, as well as internal depression. And the result of that was that for another 16 years, nothing happened with the temple. So as you can imagine, these people have returned home, and they're, they're kind of saying, who are we as a people? Why did God allow that? What was that all about? And how do we get started again? And we have no temple to worship God and to pray to Him and to do sacrifices, and we still got nations that are oppressing us and attacking us, and what's to say that they won't take us off again? And what's to say that God's going to keep His promise? He didn't seem to keep it before not understanding how their sin had played into that. And so they were discouraged. And it was another 16 years 
before the rule of the Persian king Darius, and before there was any traction with rebuilding the temple. And around this time, an angel of God appeared to Zerubbabel, the governor, in a vision that he would successfully finish the temple through a miraculous supply of the Holy Spirit. So an angel of God said to Zerubbabel, you guys are going to finish it. I'm going to help you. And it's not going to be by might and it's not going to be by power, but it's going to be by my spirit that this happens. Through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the temple would be completed and every obstacle, every high mountain would be removed. Military strength and human manpower would not accomplish this task, but rather spirit-empowered workers under the direction and leadership of Zerubbabel would accomplish this. Finally, God explained to the prophet Zechariah that Zerubbabel's finishing the restoration of the temple would not only drive their critics to silence, but it would cause them to know that God and God alone had done this, that it was humanly impossible for them to have achieved this great accomplishment, that God and God alone had done this. Well, as I think about us today, there probably isn't a single person here today that isn't facing an obstacle or an impossibility of some kind. Um, Each of us has something that weighs heavy upon us, and oftentimes we don't share that with others because we're, we're living in shame and guilt. Maybe we feel like we brought it on ourselves. Maybe we feel like nobody else would understand. No one else could identify, and so Satan drives us into isolation and discouragement. And sometimes it's a broken relationship. Sometimes it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's a a parenting challenge where you feel like you've read every book, you've talked with every counselor, and still there's no success. Maybe you're facing a fearful medical condition, and the future seems very uncertain. Maybe you're going through a financial crisis. Maybe you have an enslaving addiction. I mean, the list goes on and on. You all get what I'm talking about. Each one of us has something enormous that weighs on us, that clouds our vision, that seems to suck the life out of us. And we're afraid. And we're not too quick to talk to others or to lean upon others or to draw strength from others, not to mention from God. The Lord's message to me and to you today is, I remember, I see you. I have not forgotten you. And my word applies to your situation. It's my intention that you would draw strength from my Holy Spirit, that you would feed upon my word during this time. And I can promise you that God is not only going to do something miraculous in your life in order to silence the critics, but he will also through that draw glory to himself. He will also bring glory to his name because God never wastes anything. We, we quote that verse often, Romans 8:28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that verse does not affirm that everything that happens in life is good because a lot of life is just pure evil and just illogical nonsense. But the power of God is such that he is not limited or hindered by any sin or any person. He can work all things together for good to those who love him. Well, we're going to look at Scripture today to discover three reasons why God empowers us through His Spirit. And there's an outline for you in the bulletin if you want to take notes. And I want to suggest that the first reason, the foundational reason, if you will, 
why God empowers us through the Holy Spirit is to know and comprehend Him. To know and comprehend Him. There is nothing more important in all of life than knowing and comprehending God. And if you don't know Him, if you don't have a personal relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, then nothing else works. Nothing else makes sense. It's, fine, it's hard to find purpose and meaning. It's hard, it's next to impossible that, to have that strength to draw upon in your time of testing and, and crisis. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, Scripture records for us a beautiful prayer that he prayed for Christians. And I'm going to start in verse 14 of Ephesians 3 about what it means to know and comprehend God and how we do that through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner person, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory and the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So much in this beautiful portion of Scripture. I believe Paul is saying that the purpose of the Holy Spirit strengthening us from within is so that Christ might dwell within us, in our hearts. That Christ might live in us. That He might make His home in us. Verse 17. That, that word dwell in verse 17 is not just referring to our, our conversion experience, when, that initial moment when we invite Christ to live in our hearts. But it's speaking of us more than that. It conveys Christ being at home in the lives of believers. Christ being deeply rooted, deeply planted within us. At the very center, at the very core of who we are. The goal for Christians, the goal for you and I, is that Christ would become the dominating factor of our lives. That He would influence our attitudes and our actions. We call this, in short, the, the Lordship of Christ. That I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I am to glorify God with my body. That I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the Lordship of Christ. And that's what it means to live a Spirit-empowered life. Well, that word strengthened in verse 16 means to be strong, to overcome resistance. And I, I, I reflected on that a long time this week. I, uh, what does it mean to be strong, to overcome resistance? That seems kind of weird. But then it kind of dawned on me that you and I resist strongly to be ruled and governed by anybody else but ourselves. We are fiercely independent. We do not want to hand over the reins of our life to anybody, not to mention God. And so the Spirit 
gives us the power and the ability to surrender, to hand the reins over, to, to, put, to give up the fight and to stop resisting. It takes inner strength to allow Christ to be the Lord of our life, to allow Him to have free reign in our lives, because it goes against our desire to self-rule, self-rule to, to be self-controlled. And the Lordship of Christ is foundational. It's of first importance. It's the key to everything else in our life working and being in a healthy balance. If we are only Christians in name and not in deed and action, then it's just a game. We're just going through the motions. And our lives will lack power. And, and we will, in our spirit, sense the hypocrisy. We'll know it. The Apostle Paul continues in our passage to speak of additional goals, additional desired outcomes of the Spirit's empowerment. And one of those is that we might be able to comprehend, in his words, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of who God is. That we might know God and understand what he's doing and how we fit in with that. I love in children's ministry here at CBC that first and foremost we teach our kids to know who God is. Because if we just, as so often is the case, teach them, here's the rules, do this, don't do that, we enforce this legalistic religion divorced from a personal relationship. And the motivation to follow God needs to be out of a deep love and relationship with Him and for Him. And not to mention the energizing power of the Spirit that helps us to live the life that He calls us to live. If it's all about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things, that, as I said, that's just legalism. That's an empty shell of religion. And so of first importance is knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord and understanding God and His great love for us. Well, finally, he says in this passage, it's about knowing the love of Christ. As believers, we can't understand the fullness of God and His love apart from a genuine, Spirit-empowered love inside of us from him. John says in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, greater love hath no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. John would also say in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. Like we only know what love looks like because he modeled it for us. We've said many times, but in the English language, we just have one word, love. But in the Greek, in the original, it's so much more descriptive. It's so much more specific. There's a specific love for a parental or a maternal love. There's a brotherly love, uh, phileo, from which we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. There's many different types. There's eros, an erotic, intimate love. And there's also agape love. And agape love is God's love. It's a selfless, unconditional love that does not love others based on their worthiness, but rather adds value to the recipient through the love. And that's exactly what God does. He does not love us because we deserve it, but He adds value and worth to us through our relationship and His love for us. And all of this results in us being filled up to all the fullness of God. 
So the primary foundational reason that the Holy Spirit empowers us is to know and comprehend God. And if you think about it, we couldn't even come to salvation apart from that knowledge. We wouldn't even know that we're all sinners and that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We would not know that for by grace we have been saved and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Or countless other verses of Scripture would just be nonsense to us. They, as Paul says in Corinthians, they would be foolishness to us rather than the wisdom of God. So even the ability to come to faith in God is through God by His Holy Spirit empowering us to know and to comprehend who this divine being is and what it is that he requires of us and what he has already done in order to make that happen well secondly i believe the spirit empowers us to live victoriously to live victoriously not only to know and comprehend god but to make life work to live victoriously many of you have heard me tell the story how years ago when i was on staff at ventura missionary church we did a staff Retreat in Santa Barbara at the Samarkand Retirement Home, which is right off of Las Positas Road, right above Earl Warren Showground, kind of a Swedish retirement community, beautiful area on a hill, just a great view of everything. And one day I'm in this room kind of daydreaming because it was just going on and on and on. And I'm looking out at the, the pool and thinking, I want to be out there. You know, that looks very inviting. It was warm outside, just looked beautiful. And the pool was largely just uninhabited. But I see this old guy on his way to the pool, and he's just hobbling, you know, just barely walking. And I'm, I'm starting to get, you know, rather than amused, I'm starting to get nervous. I'm thinking if this guy gets to the pool, he's going to fall in and he's going to die because he can barely walk. How is he going to swim? And he gets to the edge of the pool, and he takes off his robe and slips into the pool. And it was absolutely spellbounding. I mean, he just glided through the pool effortlessly. When he touched the water, he had no more physical impairment. He was young again. He was a different creature. And he just glided beautifully through the water, far better than I could swim. And I just remember looking at him going, oh, my gosh. That was my takeaway from the retreat. I don't even remember what we talked about. But I'm like, that's what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Like Brittany said, how do we experience the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? It's not by sitting on our keister. It's by movement. It's about getting out of our comfort zone and attempting to do something that without God's power and help, we're going to fail. It's not about doing stuff that we can do in our own strength. That's boring. That's tame. That's safe. This guy got into the water and he just glided effortlessly and beautifully. I thought, what a picture, God, of your Holy Spirit empowering us to live life. It's like, God, help me to live like that. Help me. May I live like that. May I never forget that picture that you gave me. I think of that every time I'm at the airport, too. You know, like you're walking along, you're huffing your bags and stuff, and then you look over and you see those people on the walking sidewalk, and you're like, duh, why shouldn't I be over there? You know, I'm schlepping these bags and walking and sweating, and they're not even putting any effort, and they're going three times as fast as me. You know, I remember being at O'Hare Airport in Chicago, this long thing, and I'm like, I'm getting on that. Enough of this, you know. But you've got to do some work. You walk, but as you walk, you go faster. 
It, it, your efforts are increased exponentially. That's what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That we are faithful and accountable to do our part, but the Spirit kicks in and something supernatural takes place. Well, if you turn back a chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, I want to look at verses 1 through 10. Paul does an amazing job here of, of illustrating and describing what it means to live victoriously through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version, verses 1 through 10, Ephesians 2. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by children... By nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up together with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing richness of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Allow me to read the same passage again in the New Living Translation. Hear it with different ears. Hear it from a different perspective. Same words. Paul says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your, your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our own sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's judgment, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we were united with Christ. We are united with Christ in Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages and generations as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take any credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. I love how Paul says that God made us alive together with Christ. 
When God raised Jesus from the dead after three days in the tomb, Christ not only rose up, but you and I theologically and positionally rose to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father. We are not there physically. One day when he returns for us, we will experience that. But right now, in truth and reality, we are positioned with Christ in the heavenlies because God has raised us up along with Christ Jesus. That's the reality. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.11, For the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives in you. That same resurrection power. Powerfully. And so, God made us alive together with Christ. Verse 7, So that He could point to us in future generations and ages as examples of His incredible mercy and grace and kindness. So, so that He could showcase us and display for everyone else, anyone who loves me, and surrenders to me and follows me, this is what I do for them. This is the grace and the mercy and the kindness that I pour out to them. He made us examples of that. And also in verse 10, so that we would do the good works that God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The point of the Spirit's empowering is for you and I to live victoriously. Not for us to be weighed down and crippled by sin. In another passage, don't turn there, but just listen, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5-9, Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you became imitators of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, in an Achaia, and you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The direct impact of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in the lives of these Thessalonian believers is that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. The question for us today is, is the Spirit's indwelling and empowering making a difference in your life? I don't ask that to guilt you or shame you. I ask because it's a necessary logical consequence. If God, the same God who raised Christ from the dead, if His Spirit lives in us, it ought to make a difference. It ought to give us a different kind of power, strength, and resource to live life victoriously. Another way to put it is that the Spirit's power should be exposing lifeless, empty things in our life. Revealing to us that they are dead ends, that they are empty wells, that they promise life but they have no power to deliver. The evidence of the Holy Spirit working in my life is that increasingly when I do my own thing and I chase after empty, worthless idols, God exposes that and says, there's nothing here for you. There's no fulfillment here. There's nothing here that will sustain you. There's nothing here that will bring you joy and fulfillment this is a dead end go try my way and i guess the question for us is how much of us does the holy spirit have and you might say well all of all of me but really does god have all of us you know the 
The degree to which we are obedient and surrendered, that's how much God has of us. And typically we give some areas of our life to God while we hold on to other areas. We say, God, I've given you this, this, and this. Can I, aren't I entitled to at least hold on to this? Come on. You can't take everything away. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we allow God to occupy and control every area of our lives. And I love this illustration that the seminary professor gave to his students. He said, when teaching my students, I bring two glasses of water and two packets of Alka-Seltzer to class. And I drop one packet of Alka-Seltzer with the wrapper on into one glass. And then I plop an unsealed packet into the second glass and watch it fill with fizz. And then I say to my students, both glasses have the Alka-Seltzer, just as all Christians have the Holy Spirit. But notice how you can have the Holy Spirit and lack His filling. Notice how you can have the Holy Spirit and lack His filling. Our goal is to live in such a way as to unwrap the packaging around the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's my question today. Have you unwrapped the packaging? Or is the Holy Spirit just sitting dormant and safe within you with the, with the package and the wrapping still on? Like, I know He's in me, but thank goodness He's not going to require anything of me. Thank goodness He's not going to take me outside of my comfort zone, not press anything upon me that might be demanding of me or inconvenient of me. That's, that's a safe way, to, but it's the most powerless way to live the Christian life as well. We need to unwrap the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And personally, I know no better way to do this than through obedience and through surrender, through giving everything to God and not holding back anything, but being all in, being all in. It's a difference between doing whatever I want and saying, God, please bless that. Just walk behind me and clean up everything and make it good. Or doing the things that God in His Word has already promised to bless. Why would I want to go my own way and, and ask God to bless me when He never promised to do it when I did it my way, rather than doing it His way when He already promised to bless that, that course that He's designed for us? Well, finally, the Spirit empowers us to represent and to testify and to be faithful witnesses. The Spirit empowers us to share our story, to testify, to be faithful witnesses. Before Jesus ascended back to heaven, He said to His disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the most remote parts of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I have called you to represent, to testify. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 7-9, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and boldness and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Again, we have not been saved for ourselves. We've been saved and called for a purpose, and that is to represent, to testify, to tell. 
for all of eternity. God's Spirit empowers us to be bold, to be courageous. As we sang, you make me brave. You make me brave. You call me out into the deep waters. You call me out into places I would never go on my own. To testify and to share our story about Him. I love that old hymn. I love to tell the story. The question is, do you love to tell the story? Do you love to tell your story? I long for the the day when someday here at CBC, every week we have somebody volunteering to come up and share their testimony. We tried that for a while, and it it was like pulling teeth. And we got a bunch of women that were willing to, but no men. And you know, folks, it's not about us. It's about him. Why would we not want to share our story? Others can identify with that. Others can relate to that and be encouraged by that. I love to tell the story of unseen unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story for those who know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I was talking with my mom yesterday and her One remaining brother was just put on hospice. He's had polio for about 60 years, and he's finally just getting tired. And he lives in Pennsylvania, and the details don't work for her to fly out and be with him in his remaining days. But she was able to share scripture with him and read to him from the Bible. And she was saying that recently my aunt was over, my aunt Kartar. It's a long story. Years ago, my, my uncle, Tom Sweet, legally changed his name to Satguru Singh Khalsa. And he joined the Sikh religion, the turban and the long flowing white garments. And he married a lady named Kartar. And about, long story short, about 10, 15 years ago, my uncle died in a motorcycle accident, not knowing Jesus as his Savior and Lord. So it's my mom's last brother, and uh, she was speaking to my aunt here in Santa Barbara, uh, my deceased uncle's uh, wife, and she had a lot of questions because she's still not a believer, but a lot of her friends are dying, and she's asking tough questions, and my mom said, I got to tell my story. Got to tell her about a year ago how I was having open heart surgery, and I was very fearful, had a lot of unknowns, and I got to share God's faithfulness and my story of his power at work in my life. And at one point I said, I don't want to preach to you. And she said, no, no, I want to hear it. My mom said, I felt like I really got to plant some seeds that I've been laying the groundwork for for years and years. The question is, do you and I love to tell our story? I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we close this morning, but the Holy Spirit empowers us to know and to comprehend who God is. And not just that, but so that we can live lives of victory. 
And finally, so that we can testify to be faithful witnesses, to represent Him to a world that is lost and in search of answers. And I guess my encouragement to you today is that in your season of darkness, in your time of hurt, in the midst of what seems to be like an impossibility, Yahweh God remembers you. Yahweh sees you. He hears you. And He promises that He has not forgotten you. And He reminds you. He reminds me. He reminds us. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my Spirit. Let's pray.